Welcome to the audiobook version of the novel Mercy Not Sacrifice by Dan Parks, read by the author. Hey, this is Dan Parks, author of Mercy Not Sacrifice. Let me say thank you for listening to my audiobook version of the project. I really appreciate it. It was fun to do, and it's, it's also fun to record. If you're enjoying this, please do me a favor and leave a review and rate the podcast, as that really helps me on iTunes, helps it get noticed and helps other people enjoy the project as well. Thanks. Stay tuned for another chapter. Chapter 11. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving Day is a quiet morning in Gardenstown. It's a time when adults lay about in the living rooms of their parents' home and leave their childhood twin beds unmade until the afternoon. Grandchildren play in the backyard with the toys of their parents and are not amused and are left wondering how anyone could be entertained by such simple things. Across town, the fish hook had finally come to a rest, but the smell of barley and hops and rye remained strong as the sawdust was piled high against the legs of the shuffleboard table. The middle beer tap handle at the bar was missing, as when the keg of local hook sale had been blown, a group consensus had ruled to remove it and use the handle as a microphone for an impromptu karaoke session. By the time that Tripp and Jimmy had announced last call, Ian had been passed out by the door for some time and he made a captive centerpiece for our family portrait, as Bill and Lenny were to his left, and Stefan and I at his right. Lori's family had always started their dinner at 11. One year, her grandmother Salt had been 15 minutes late, and they started without her. Promptness was important to her family, and they'd move on when they needed to. If only I had learned that from her family. The air was cool, as Grandpa John laced up his shoes and stepped out the door, he hadn't talked to anyone in the family since Grandma Marta's funeral. Grandpa John walked down past the city limit sign, and as he crested the hill, he saw Archie's car parked out in front of Ian's house. The local chief of police, Wesley George, lived halfway down the left. He stood on his front porch, in front of his barbecue smoker, with a beer in his hand. Wesley was a big man, with an even larger voice. Hi, John, he said, raising the can in his hand. Mr. George, Grandpa John responded. Happy Thanksgiving. Grandpa John walked off the street and took some steps into the driveway towards Wesley. Down the hill, Sam pulled into the driveway and Grandpa John inched closer in on the patio into the shade of a small Bradford pear tree. Got a turkey on that thing? Grandpa John asked. Becky wasn't crazy about the idea at first, Wesley said. She's into all that health food. Has to watch what she eats with all that running she does. Grandpa John had most of his attention on Ian's house but he did retain a corner of his eye for Wesley George. Sam and his wife Carmela stepped out of the car and walked to the door. Carmela had been looking down at her phone, and when she reached the stoop, she stumbled. When her feet hit the rise in concrete, she dropped her casserole dish, spilling out the green beans that were inside, onto the step. What the hell? Sam said. Thank God it's plastic, Carmela responded as she swept the contents back into the container with her hand. She asked to wash her hands as soon as she got through the door. Wesley George tapped Grandpa John on the shoulder to regain his attention. She wanted to get a tofurkey this year, said Wesley George. I said, I ain't eating no Japanese turkey, Becky. Now I'm out here, alone, drinking beer. He lifted the lid to check the progress of his turkey, and smoking this fine bird. Grandpa John's stomach grumbled with hunger, as the scent reminded him of what it had been like to have a woman to cook for him. His time with Grandma Marta had been cut short and his eyes began to fill with regret. That smoke is making my eyes water, Grandpa John said as he turned away. Where's Becky now? 
At her mother's, he responded. Apparently her folks don't mind eating that fake turkey. Wesley walked to the red cooler by his front door, and after three steps, he pulled out a foot-tall weed that had grown up in the brick patio and threw it into the yard. Digging his hands into the ice water, a bit of the weed soaked off his hand and floated next to what was remaining of the 30-pack of beer. Want one, John? I better be going, he said. Yeah, Wesley George replied. Better get your ass down to Ian's, or they'll eat without you. Wesley George took a cigar out of his front pocket and cut the end and lit it with a match and sat down in his chair. Ian's, Grandpa John said. That's where I'm headed. I'll drink one for you, Wesley George said as he winked and popped open his can and gulped most of it down with the first drink. Grandpa John walked down the hill and turned left passing by Ian's house. Through the window he saw Jeffrey setting the table in the dining room and at the old oak tree in the front yard he heard the laughter of a young girl. Trying to escape, his steps grew in length and speed. But Selma opened the gate in the backyard fence and ran when she saw him. Grandpa John, Selma yelled. Grandpa John knelt down on one knee in the street and caught Selma in his arms. He lifted her high to the sky and spun her around. My Selma, he said as he set her down. How are you? Good, she answered. Selma looked back at her house and to the cars in the driveway. She turned back to Grandpa John and placed her hands on her hips, adding up the sum to the question in her mind. Aren't you coming to Thanksgiving, she asked. He could have knocked on the door and asked to come in. Archie would have had to swallow his pride and Carmela would have had to bite her tongue, but Ian would have made a place for Grandpa John at the table. Sam would have been stern and quiet for a short time, but he couldn't have held it in for too long. Eventually the stories of the early years at Carmen Carriers would have been told. As a wound heals, the skin begins to itch and, and can be bothersome. Becoming a whole again as a family is a slow and painful itch. But with time, anyone can choose to begin again. Not today, Selma, he said. Grandpa John couldn't paint the happy picture. He didn't think he deserved to be at the table. We don't get to choose our family, but we do get to pick if we're actually going to be one. And he made his choice. Please? Grandpa John looked into her young eyes, but he turned away. Go ahead and go back to the house now, he said. He placed his hand on the small of her back and kissed her head and sent her forward to the house. Grandpa John watched her skip away as her young mind was at ease and without the burden that comes from a jaded family tree. On the way, she kicked the soccer ball that lay in the yard to the driveway and it bounced up off the curb and carried up the hill just as my dad, Donnie's car, had come down the incline and into the driveway. The front passenger side of the tire hit the ball and popped it. The noise made Grandpa John turn around and when he saw who it was, he walked faster and paced down onto Orchard Drive and away from the day. Selma ran after her ball. What's the matter, Selma? My dad asked. You ran over my ball. She stomped her foot and stared at him in protest, crossing her arms. I'm sorry, Selma, he said, but his concentration was on the man walking away down the road. I tell you what, he said, lifting her chin. I'll buy you a new one. But I don't want a new one, she said. That was my first soccer ball. Grandpa John disappeared out of his view. Sometimes you gotta start over new, but I don't wanna, she said. Donnie grabbed Selma and curled her into the nook of his left arm and walked her towards the house. At the front door, he tried to turn the handle of the storm door, but it wouldn't open. It doesn't work, Selma said. Dad broke it. How do we get in? Ring the doorbell, she answered. Ian came to the door, wearing a look of exhaustion on his face. Dad, he said, come in. The men of the family had long established the living room as their domain. Archie sat down in the far corner of the couch, next to the big window that overlooked the lake. 
He lifted the lid on the small beer cooler to the side and placed an empty in. He took a fresh one out. He twisted the cap and took a swig and continued to stare blankly out the window. Sam stood up when Donnie entered and walked towards him. Donnie, Sam said with a calming grin. It's been too long. He gave him a firm handshake and Donnie returned an awkward hug. Just about this time last year at Mom's funeral, Donnie responded. And a steady flow of family began to come. Uncle Sam's oldest son, Bill, and his wife, Rita, and their son, and their son Billy Jr., drove in the 125-mile drive from Kansas City, where his wife was to stay home until Billy Jr. came of age, and by the looks of his soft hands, that length of time was indefinite. Rita made sure that their son was dressed to the letter. When most young boys would have grass stains on their knees, Billy Jr. kept his white pressed slacks as pure as heaven up until Labor Day. She walked into the kitchen and announced her dish. I brought kale. It's a superfood. And Bill shuffled his way into the living room. That's a damn long drive with her, he said. And with the kid. He shook his head and walked towards Archie and was promptly handed a bottle of beer. Lenny and his wife Vera rang the doorbell next. They stood looking through the glass and tugged on the handle. It's broken, Donnie said as he jumped up to help. Lenny's happy, go lucky face greeted him back. Uncle Donnie! Lenny worked for Carmen Carriers as a mechanic so that he could be home every night, and he had a good reason to be. His wife Vera came through the door behind him, and all the men's eyes followed. She walked in a way that had emptied a man's mind of anything else. The best part was that she was a mother. Women for too many years have believed the lie that elegance leaves them once they enter maternity, but a caretaker is the most attractive thing in the world. Her girls followed her through the door. The oldest, Megan, was a mere image of her mother. The middle one, Marley, wore black rimmed glasses. The youngest, Maria, was five years old and wore ribbons in her pigtails. Archie's only daughter, Kylie, and her husband, Stephen Herman, and their son, Joe, entered after them. She was a partner of the law firm Jacobs, Jacobs and & Herman and walked in with her business pantsuit pressed with a brooch on her breast. Stephen's jeans were cut on the ankles so they could fit over his boots. He wore a ball cap with a grease spot and a fish hook on the brim. Their son Tate was a head taller than the rest of the kids, and he compensated by stooping down and shrugging his shoulders to be the same height as the other kids. He looked at his mother, and she nodded, and he walked downstairs to find them. Kylie strolled into the kitchen and struck up conversation as soon as she entered. So the other day, on this case, Stefan strutted his way in the room full of men, and Lenny handed him a bottle of beer, and he sat down and grabbed his cap by the brim, took it off, and rubbed his head, and put the cap back on again. Ian canvassed the kitchen and counted the heads of the women and Jeffrey. He walked to the living room and numbered the men. He then went downstairs and counted the children. We got 21, but I'm supposed to have 22, he said, walking up the stairs from the living room back into the kitchen. Who is missing? I rang the doorbell. Here's our 22nd, he said. I entered the house and scanned the living room and sat down on the hearth across from my dad. I got my eye on Dallas, Archie said. Romo was going to throw for at least 300 yards on that sloppy Washington defense. Sam took a long, last pull on his beer and sat it down by the coffee table in front of him. Dallas is favored by six, he said. You're right, Arch. I take them, plus the points. That late game's going to be better, Lenny said from across the room. Detroit and Chicago. The men continued doing what men do before Thanksgiving dinner in Gardenstown. They drank beer and burped and talked football. I got up and touched my dad on the knee as I passed and walked into the kitchen. 
There the women did much the same. Regina and Cece were taking plastic wrap off casserole dishes and Vera was helping to prepare a salad and Kylie continued to talk about her work. My mind wandered to the thought of what it had been like to have a mother at the occasion. But then I saw Jeffrey standing at the sink. You can see my place right out this window, I said, pointing across the pond to where my mobile home sat. I know, Johnny, Jeffrey said as his eyes met mine and he struggled to smile. He had held a white electric carving knife in his hand. Have you ever carved a turkey before? I asked. No. Was this your dad's idea? Yes, he responded. I turned around and scanned the kitchen to see that no one noticed or cared that an 11-year-old was cutting the turkey. Jeffrey should have been sitting in the living room, learning how to be a man or downstairs with the other kids, leading them in play. But instead, Ian had used Jeffrey for his convenience. I wondered where Kathleen was. Just cut a little off at a time, I said as he turned the knife on and cautiously held it over to the turkey. He cut, and I pulled the meat off and placed it on a serving platter. About halfway through, Regina came to nibble on some of our progress. Johnny, she said, chewing, separate the white and the dark meat. As she waved her palm over the platter, whatever medley you have going on here isn't how it's supposed to be. She took another bite as she walked away and said, It'll work, but it's not right. Ian rounded up the family to the dining room to eat. The kids sat at a small table over by the glass doors by the deck, and the adults sat in a formal dining room off the kitchen. Two long plastic folding tables had been assembled, and three white tablecloths had been stretched over them, six chairs to a side, and a chair on the foot and the head of the table. When we had all sat down, the chair to Ian's left remained empty. Is Kathleen coming? I asked. She hasn't been feeling well, he said. But if you don't mind, I'll go check on her. The Thanksgiving Day meal centered around the turkey. To its right was a big red bowl of mashed potatoes with a healthy scoop of butter that had begun to melt and made its way down and pooled at the bottom. Green bean casserole was on its left and had been a staple in our family since Archie had been born. Sweet potatoes with the many marshmallows on top flanked it all and cranberries acted as meal's crescendo because it would not have been a Thanksgiving Day meal without them. The inhabitants of Purgatory waited for less time than we did that day for Ian to return, and Jeffrey walked up to the adult table. The kids are getting restless, he said, looking first to the women and then to me. Can we eat, or do we need to wait until Mom comes out? Being the oldest, Regina first looked at Carmela. They then together looked down to Rita and Kylie and Vera and worked to form a consensus opinion. The young ones began to pull turkey from the platter by hand and dipped it in the bowl of mashed potatoes, and the women wouldn't say a word. Go ahead, Jeffrey, I said. Kids can't wait forever. Kathleen slipped into the kitchen and stood behind Jeffrey with a smile on her face, and when he turned to see her, he said, You look pretty, Ma. She strode into the dining room with the confidence that had been missing for years. Her long hazel hair was straightened and floated above her shoulders. She wore eyeliner and bright red lipstick and silver feather earrings that glimmered above a large gray scarf resting atop a new bra underneath a mustard-colored sweater. Her outfit carried her forward to the head of the table. When she sat down, we bowed her heads and looked to my dad to say the prayer. Thank you, Father, Donnie said, for this family and the meal that we share today. Teach us how to give how you do, to live how you did, and to love as you have. Amen. We have been a Catholic family for ten generations. Grandma Marta had traced the Carmen name all the way to the time that they left Germany and integrated the Great Britain. It was Grandpa John's father, 
that made the journey to America where he first landed on Ellis Island. He then migrated to St. Louis on the news of work, which led him up the river to Gardenstown. The one thing that remained consistent that whole time was that the Carmens were Catholic. The saints, the angels, and the crucifix. The rest of the family was used to saying a bless us the Lord before dinner. And when Dad said his homemade Baptist prayer, they raised their eyebrows. But no one stopped him. And they just simply performed the sign of the cross when he was finished. Once we began to eat, I felt the need to get the conversation going. You get my truck back in the shape? I blurted out in the direction of Lenny, who sat across from me at the table. Yeah, he responded, wiping his mouth with a napkin on his lap. You need to take it easy on that clutch. There wasn't a thing left when I pulled it out. Archie, Sam, and my dad watched the back and forth between us. Dad chuckled first, then Archie, and finally Sam too. You drive where I do, I said. Stop and go traffic, and San Francisco is nothing but hills. When I first learned to drive a truck, Donnie said, as he calmly nudged me with his elbow, your Grandpa John was so patient with me. I must have went through three clutches that first year. Mike the mechanic called me the fireman, because everywhere I went, smelled of a burnt clutch. Is Mike still around? Mike still comes in part-time, Lenny answered. He might be hanging up soon. It all depends on what type of bonuses we get this year. Archie did the financials of Carmen Carriers and took the mention of bonuses as an opportunity to speak. We'll be handing out Christmas bonuses, he said. Probably in the neighborhood of last year, but I think we have a bigger problem to sort out as a family and business together. We need to think about the primary stockholder. The table grew quiet. I had thought that I was the only one who realized that Grandpa John wasn't at the table. I have discussed it with Ian, Archie said, looking across the table. It's time for the business to buy out Grandpa John. He has been away and is only getting older. It'll only simplify things for the future if we do this now. Sam held his chin in his hands as he was steady in thought, but across the table his wife, Carmela's ears were perked at attention. How could he talk about Grandpa John if he were just a business partner? All assets should be considered in the valuing of the share price of the stock, Archie said. An honest valuation of Grandpa John's 75% stake would be $22.5 million. That's considering what he built as a $30 million company. It was about money to them, but Carmen Carriers was all I had left. If all a man truly wants is money, then he can get as much as he wants. But most people don't want money. They want what it gives them. The pleasure, or the admiration, or the power. Only the fool wants money just for the sake of it. And Archie liked to count his dollars. You're included in this too, Donnie, Archie said. Sam and I draw salaries from the company. And you're still a one-fourth owner. He was your dad too. I raised my hand immediately as if I needed permission to speak. What do you mean was? I asked. Am I the only one that feels like someone is missing from the meal today? Johnny, please, Sam said. Not now. If not now, then when? I stood up. Grandpa John hasn't been a part of this family for some time now, Archie said. I looked around the table and saw all the heads nodding in agreement with him. If no one was going to stick up for Grandpa John, then I had to. I chose action over inaction. It was my sacrifice to make. He should have been here today, I said. Sam stood up and cleared his voice to address the room. I thought I was done with him when he didn't make it to the hospital, he said. But at her funeral, when we had to attend alone, he died to me that day. Everybody sits here today because of him, I said. This money that you talk about, 
Where do you think it came from? Don't you realize that it was his hands that built the company? It was his sacrifice. He built you, he built me, and he built this family. I painted in frustration and anger. My dad grabbed my wrist and tried to get me to sit down, but I pulled away. Can't you find it in your hearts to give the man some mercy? He is your father and my grandpa. I pointed at the children sitting at their table. Their great-grandpa. Jeffrey heard my rising voice and approached our table. Is everything okay? he asked. Go sit down, Ian said. Kylie spoke up. Are the grandkids going to get shares? I had had enough. God damn it, I yelled. Grandpa John is still alive. I slammed my fist down on the table, knocking over the gravy boat, and a stream of the brown liquid ran down towards my dad's lap. I jumped up from my chair and left the table and charged out the front door. My dad took the napkin from his lap and mopped up my mess. Lord, have mercy, he said.